Welcome to Return to Reason. My name is David Craig. I'm filling in today for Leon. Joining us today is a Canadian lawyer, Lisa Bildy. You know, upon her return to the full-time practice of law, she challenged the Law Society of Ontario's compelled statement of principles. She led a successful campaign known as Stop Sop to elect to the Law Society a slate of lawyers who are committed to truth and a classic liberal view of holding personal convictions free from interference. I'm excited to hear about two of her recent cases involving medical professionals who are currently being censored and disciplined for their personal views. Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. Well, Lisa, I'm so glad you've been able to join us. And actually, if you don't mind, I'd love to dive into a little bit about culture wars. And this has been a thing that's brewing for a while. And even the idea that people want to control what you think, or if you have your own thoughts that might not line up with what maybe certain institutions want or government or groups or small interest groups, whatever, is that you have a wrong thought or you shouldn't be allowed to express that. That's something that has grown exponentially and been amplified through COVID. That also, I believe, has grown into two cases that you are currently representing, which parameters might be slightly different, but can you just really briefly, can you catch us up on um, registered nurse um, Amy Ham's case and what's happening and, and why that is such an important case that people should be aware of? Sure. Well, one of the things that came to my attention as I was battling the law society is how vulnerable a lot of our institutions and including our our regulators, our professional regulators are to being taken over essentially by people who share this sort of cultural orthodoxy. And, uh, you know, you have to have exactly what you just said. You have to have these views or you don't belong with us. And so they have a certain number of tools in their toolbox, which is basically they get to regulate professionals and ensure that they are you know, there's some there's some words that are quite broadly could be broadly defined, like professional misconduct. You know, what constitutes professional misconduct? Well, that's in the eye of the you know of the college, and and then there's various committees that uh, that um, review um, complaints and, and initiate their own, and then there's also ultimately a disciplinary committee that will hear cases that go that far, and that's where we're at with with Amy Hammett. Um, there have been a number of examples that I have come across where these where these colleges, these regulatory bodies, among other institutions, I think it's everywhere. Certainly, it's in universities. Yeah. I could talk about this for hours with all the cases I've seen there. But in the regulatory bodies, that's where it's concerning because it's almost like you know, if you aren't woke, you don't get to be a, a you know, name it a doctor, a social worker, a nurse, a lawyer, or whatever. That's kind of where we're heading if we're not careful here. So um, Ms. Ham's case is is uh, one where she's she's a nurse, but she uh, wasn't tweeting or writing as such. She just happened to have it in her bio uh, on Twitter for a little while, and it's gone now. But uh, she's engaged in what what you might call the gender wars. She's um, she's been speaking out against gender ideology, and it's <clears throat> pardon me, and it's on on its impacts uh, on women and on the safeguarding of children. So. This is something she feels very passionately about. She's been tweeting about it, writing articles, appearing on podcasts and so on. Uh, And that was going on for a few years. Um, As you may know, JK Rowling in the UK, the Harry Potter author, got herself into hot water by tweeting something that was in support of women's rights. And again, it wasn't transphobic, at least, you know, I certainly didn't think so. She was respectful of transgendered people having um, 
equal rights to anyone else and certainly not being discriminated against, but she was concerned about the impact on women and girls uh, and, and children generally. And she was you know, taken to task by many people on social media, including people that she had given a career to <laughs> through her movies um, and her books. But uh, anyway, Amy Hamm and a, and a friend put up a billboard in Vancouver and it said, I heart JK Rowling. Well, that's what got Amy Hamm on the radar of some of the activists in Vancouver in particular. There was a city councillor who had um, spoken up on Twitter against it, uh, media glommed on, and then there were a couple of activists, one of whom we found on uh, on LinkedIn, identifies himself as a social justice warrior and uh you know, a, a fan of Karl Marx, basically. So, oh. um, so he, uh, he and this other person, we don't know her name, it's uh, his or her name, it was an anonymous complaint, but uh, uh, anonymous to us, but they filed complaints with the College of Nurses in BC against Amy to mm -hmm. say, you know, this person shouldn't be a nurse. And the college decided to basically to to prosecute that. So even though she had never had a patient complaint in all her 10 years of being a nurse, um, even though she'd worked with transgender people in the past to, you know, and, and was always respectful and never had any complaints. And even though there was actually no transgender person who came forward and said, I've been harmed by this language, th they proceeded on the basis of these two activist complaints uh, to, to take her through what is turning out to be quite a grueling process. We are now, we just finished seven days of hearings. We have four more in January. Uh, I don't know if that'll be enough. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's really quite quite the process. Wow. As you're saying, she had a great track record within her work. No mm -hmm. complaints or files, but there, it, and even has worked with people um, that this activist group now is coming after her for. But essentially, it was an outside activist group that is putting her in hot water because of something that she thinks. Is that correct? Is it a correct summary? Yeah, it's not even a group in this case. It's just a couple of individuals wow. who, yeah. who uh, wrote complaints to the college. And so... I, you know, with that case, it wasn't the first one I had seen. There was another one out in Nova Scotia involving a, a doctor there, and I had written a letter to the college on his behalf. That one went away before going to a disciplinary hearing, but that mm -hmm. was a case where uh, where there was a group of activists who basically um, were concerned about something in a different context that he had said in, in, a, in an opinion piece in the newspaper. And, uh, you know, they wanted to basically curtail his free speech and have him censured for speaking up in a way that they didn't think was appropriate. Um, so my, I was already concerned that these the complaints process would be weaponized by these people who want to cancel other people for not sharing their views or for speaking out or, you know, having heaven forbid, having diversity of, of opinions on on things. So uh, it's vulnerable to that. And then particularly if you do have colleges that have kind of gone a little bit in that direction or yeah. very far in that direction, um, they're going to have a they're going to have a receptive um infrastructure that will take those complaints very seriously. So as a nation of Canada, there's a lot of people that are concerned with and even afraid of speaking up what they believe because of cases and, and examples like what you're dealing with, where people's lives are actually being messed with um, and their livelihoods are being messed with. Do you think that we are at, are, are we at a crossroads in our nation or are we already past that crossroads 
Um, meaning, is it an uphill battle to actually claw it back to a place where it's acceptable? Um, obviously, within the confounds of, of not going into hate speech and that type of stuff. But are, are we at a place where we've gotten too far as a country where we can't claw back? Hmm. You know, um, there's a part of me that would like to say there's still good reason to keep fighting. And, you know, I'm yeah. obviously doing that. So yeah. I, I'm not giving it, giving, throwing in the towel yet. But, um, I would say that 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 mentality does have what you could say is cultural hegemony. I mean, they they dominate all the cultural institutions at the moment. And so without a concerted effort uh, to try and claw it back, I think it will be very difficult to do so. Um, so, you know, the universities uh, are where we generate all the young minds and, and frankly indoctrinate them nowadays. And uh, and it's spreading into K to 12. And I just did a case recently involving uh, a six-year-old girl who was told in her grade one class that there was no such thing as boys and girls. Yeah. And we lost at the uh, Human Rights Tribunal, not surprisingly. I wasn't expecting to win necessarily. But, you know, again, examples of this kind of gender ideology and other ideologies being pushed on children yeah. as young as grade one and maybe sooner. And so parents have to be very mindful and do what they can to inoculate their kids uh, and let them know that there's other opinions about there out there. And again, not that anyone is trying to be mean or, or hateful, but what's not be, it's not tolerance that's being taught. It's actually intolerance exactly. that's being taught. And so rather than saying, hey, kids come, people come in all shapes and sizes and interests and so on, let's be kind and, and, and accepting of differences. That's not what they're teaching. They're teaching that um, basically that, you know, there are no, there's no such thing as men and women, boys and girls. Those words don't have any meaning anymore. Yeah. And uh, and so that confuses and disrupts the identity formation of children. And so then, you know, you've got people who are who struggle with identity. Well, what happens? They become very vulnerable to being pulled in all directions and um, become very good revolutionaries. So yeah. as the as the pipeline of new recruits continues through the K to 12 and university system and now into all these positions in society, whether media, um, these regulatory bodies, government, etc., you know, it gets to be pretty hard to to speak out against it. And they have this tool of shame because they've convinced people that they have the moral authority on all these issues. And anybody who dares to counter it must be some horrible, immoral, you know, um, racist, transphobe, whatever, you name it, rather than which is actually what is actually true, which is that most people are pretty tolerant in a classical liberal sort of sense. You know, you live your life, I'll live mine. Totally. And uh, but that's not what's happening. That mentality that we used to have coming out of the 60s the civil uh, civil rights movement of uh, free speech of you can live your life i'll live mine of uh, the state stays out of the bedroom all of that uh isn't what we are doing anymore i mean that is now considered archaic and and you know the martin luther king jr approach to race relations all of that is is considered to be um you know, just no longer the way to do things. We don't even consider it as a reasonable position to be in anymore. And so, um, yeah, we have a lot of work to do in this country and people need to wake up to it. And I, uh, frankly, with the COVID piece over the last couple of years, I've, I confess I'm a little less hopeful about the ability to do so. Well, frankly, when it comes to the what our democracy is built on and the pillars of our democracy, it's the ability to have different lines of thought and have conversations and still be able to say, okay, well, let's agree to disagree. 
Hopefully I got something out of what you said. Hopefully you got something out of what I said. But that's how we've been able to sharpen these ideas and grow as a nation. And when that starts to erode, it's really a, a major telling sign that potentially that democracy is eroding in your country. And, and some of the things you were saying is these ideologies ultimately look like they're cloaked um, with terms like love and acceptance and all that, but you mentioned they're actually intolerant because they're not willing to accept someone else might think something different, which is very fragile um, at its base. And uh, you, you mentioned in your opening statement of Ham's disciplinary case that trans people and trans ideology and its activists are two very different things. So can you explain and expand upon what you meant? Right. Well, I mean, I think most people, transgender people, and a lot of a lot of trans trans people who do not uh, align with the ideology surrounding it often call themselves transsexual, which is an older term, but it's also a distinguishing term. Um, you know, most of those folks just wanted to get on with their lives. Uh, they blended in reasonably well, or they didn't. I mean, and you know, but but regardless, I don't think that there was a huge issue for most of them. Uh, again, it's not speaking for everyone, but acceptance was certainly growing in in my uh, view. But when it became bound up in queer theory and uh, and a very, you know, uh, and a very aggressive ideology that isn't just accepting these people for for their way of life, but but also kind of pushing it on the kids. Um, that's where I think it's it's really started to cross a line, and now it's it's being taken up by people who are not transgender. Yep. You know, like those people who complained against Amy Ham are. To my knowledge, they're not. I mean, um, so they're just activists who think that that's the cause that they want to fight. And so they can be very aggressive and, um, you know, very, uh, very dogmatic in their views. And uh, they don't want there to be a debate about this. So and again, I think actually transsexual or transgender people will be harmed in the process because and frankly, gay and lesbian people will be harmed in the process because they're lumped in together with what is becoming a very uh, pushy um, aggressive and, um, you know, uh, intolerant ideology. And, and it's not fair to, to those people who were gaining acceptance and just wanted to live their lives. So again, I come at this from sort of a classical yeah. liberal perspective. I appreciate that there's various views about that too, but, um, you know, that's, that, that is unfortunately what I think is, is, is happening. And, and yeah, there is a distinction to be made. And I don't think that trans people should be treated badly, uh, by any means, nor does Amy Ham, right. But, um, but that's how it gets framed because you could because you oppose the broader ideology you you must be transphobic it's, it's not true well, I agree with you. I think on the day-to-day -day level of human-to-human -human in Canada, people are very tolerant of each other, willing to accept. And when you have a lot of these things amplified through or over-politicized or, or media um, blows things out or social media blows things out of proportion or you have activist groups that are acting, and, and it seems like there might be a larger group behind it. I'm not trying to make a sweeping statement about all things, but a lot of times it seems like things are misrepresented or o overblown. And, and with both of the cases that you're currently with, with, with Dr. Gill and also with Amy Ham, they're both obviously a part of our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier how it seems like institutions seem to be, um, I forget exactly how you put it, but basically institutions might be a little fragile at this moment, <laughs> to put it politely. Can you tell mm -hmm. me a little bit about institutional capture and why do you think the healthcare system in general is experiencing this kind of cancel culture? 
Well, I, I think we are certainly seeing it uh, in both of those areas, in, in uh, gender, gender care for especially children and in, uh, and in the COVID response uh, where, you know, there's a, a certain group think that just kind of um, takes over and it becomes very hard professionally for anybody to speak out against this steamroller of opinion that mm -hmm. is is the only correct one in in both of those areas and uh, uh so in terms of capture well you know look the, i know this from my experience with the law society most of the people that we put forward as candidates were not aspiring to be ventures this wasn't their life goal nor did they want to control anybody else's life they just wanted to carry on with their practice and not have the law society dictating what they're supposed to think and, and various other um you know overreach because these people love to govern and uh and, and find ways to creep into your life you know they're not the kind of people who aspire to be on all the committees there is a kind of person that does and these are the moral busybodies largely who get on to all the all the institutional committees the hiring committees the you know uh, you name it they're they're there and municipal councils are weak, uh, have a weakness for this as well um in a lot of places so yeah. you know they they're on the committees they're the ones deciding these things and our society right now is very much governed not by its legislatures but by its administrative um professional managerial class and there's a huge bureaucracy in there that governs so much of our day-to-day -day lives and if you can get enough people in there to to shift the culture and that does happen becomes very hard to shift it back i'll give you another example i know of some regulatory body i, I won't name names but i know of one where this sort of uh woke culture took over the the governing council and then what they did was they put a code of conduct in place and i think this is happening in in many places where basically if you were critical of their um strategic plan which included bringing in their edi um, you know, their equity, diversity and inclusion plan, which, you know, again, is an ideological platform, right? And it's yeah. designed to, um, you know, to to ensure that the equity is is an equality of outcome. It's a very it's a Marxist kind of um, ideology that has nothing to do with equality. Equality is a totally different thing. So um, but what they do is they put these codes of conduct in to say, well, you you basically if you disagree with us or you run afoul of what we're doing, then then you can be um, penalized. And so, you know, you get somebody who wants to step in and try and fix things. If they do it by themselves, they're either going to get picked off and bullied uh, or they're going to be told that that they're in, in violation of the code of conduct and they'll face discipline. And of course, the process is the punishment yeah. uh, or, you know, they'll just be like just so exhausted by having to fight on all these, totally. all these battles. That, you know, so you really need to get a bunch of people together to, to, to take them over directly. Um, but it happens. And once you get an institution that hits that tipping point, well, you know, nobody's going to want to rock the boat. And so uh, and it, so the impact in healthcare is that you get bodies like I'm, I'm, I won't name any, but I think we can probably all think of some where it just becomes a, a culture that you cannot disagree with the edicts that are that are being put forward. And so um, with COVID, we saw this with with doctors who tried to say, well, hey, you know, there's there's concerns about lockdowns or there's concerns about uh, vaccine mandates. Well, many of them are being disciplined by their governing bodies or otherwise ostracized or ruined publicly if they if that can be done. So it's very dangerous because you do need to have uh, heterodox opinions in order to ensure we don't all go off the cliff together. We, you know, we we, we do need to make, make sure that we're considering all the, the uh, all the possibilities before we make big societal level decisions. And that's not happening. 
T tell me about Dr. Gill and the case that's going on. I, I followed her, I know, personally for a couple of years now. She's been uh, very vocal in her thoughts and opinions during COVID through Twitter. Um, maybe let us know and the audience know um, what's, what's happening with her, what her case is and where it stands. Yeah, so I've just recently in the last few months taken over her, uh, some of her cases. She's been um, embroiled in a lot of disputes, uh, unfortunately, because she did speak up. Um, you know, I think the arc of history is bending towards Dr. Gill. She spoke out on things from the very beginning, expressing concern about lockdowns uh, and mandating the shots for, for people. Um, you know, another issue was um, she just felt that a lot of her profession was was ignoring T cells and and their role in in immunity and and other things that she she just felt the group think was not um, addressing. You know, the, the there was there were she wanted to to bring another perspective to the to the table and um, and she did it in, I think in a very professional manner. She she put forward tweets usually citing other um, studies or commenting on things that were coming out that uh, maybe people weren't aware of. And uh, nonetheless, she she was also subject to this kind of activist approach. There were, I think, uh, about, well, first there were a bunch of doctors who took exception to what she was saying and rallied to get people to um, file complaints, at least from one tweet I saw. There was an encouragement to, to that end. Yep. Uh, so there were, there were a number of complaints filed by members of the public against her tweets um, and by a couple of doctors as well. She filed a defamation lawsuit, and that was not something I was involved in. I'm still not involved in that. And people may have heard that uh, that it was thrown out with a very high cost award of over a million dollars uh, that she's been ordered to pay. So I, I have gotten involved. Uh, these public complaints, a bunch of them, the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons actually said that they were uh, confident or at least comfortable that she had some basis for what she said. And so they they didn't go further with those. There were a few where they issued what's called a caution, which is basically goes on her on her permanent record, her public record to say, you know, it's kind of like a wrist slap. But but it's a fairly it doesn't go to the discipline here panel, but it's just at the investigations level. They say, well, you know, um, we think that you deserve to be cautioned for what you've said. So. She uh, um, had three of those. The college itself, in addition to these complaints, started its own investigation against her, uh, registrar's investigation, and they pulled all her tweets, basically, and, and were examining those. Uh, her previous lawyer dealt with that one. And there's a judicial review arising out of, out of that caution. Yeah. It's all very complicated. But I will say there's been a second investigation also. So I, I'm helping her with reviewing those couple of cautions at the um, Health Professions uh, Appeal and Review Board. So we've argued that we're waiting for a decision. But there's this new investigation that the college launched against her. And we filed a very significant submission to the college at the investigation level, encouraging them not to take it further. But it is going now to a disciplinary hearing. And we don't have a date yet. It'll be sometime next year. Uh, so her troubles continue. Um, you know, I, I do think that she'll probably be vindicated on the science in the end. I, I mean, I I hope that uh, there'll be a vindication. Um, but in any event, that's that's the process. It started off with public complaints, and it's turned into her college basically continuing to keep an eye on anything she says. So, is her college trying to use her, or is the college trying to use her as an example to set a precedent going forward, uh, trying to basically muzzle or mute? Uh, those are my words, um, or speak outside of the lane. Or is there grounds that they have to be able to go make these complaints and watch? Right. Well, what I said at the beginning was that there's there's this sort of um, 
mandate that the colleges all have, which is to regulate um, professional misconduct. Yeah. Okay, so so well, what is professional misconduct? It's, it's been determined in a number of cases. These are cases that are very novel now because we didn't used to have, for the most part. I mean, there might be a doctor who spoke up, say, against vaccines, um, uh, you know, years ago, who might have been hauled on the carpet on on that, or um, you know, there, there'd be the odd example. But by and large there weren't political complaints being put forward. And and that's what I think that a lot of this is. And I have made that argument. Look, you shouldn't be precluded from challenging the government. And that's what they're basically doing. I mean, they put out an edict saying that uh, doctors were supposed to follow public health and the government specifically. So, and that was in Ontario. I don't know about other jurisdictions, but but that to me was an alarming edict because First of all, um, doctors ha- are allowed to have their own opinions about things. And, you know, we always get second opinions, right? If there's something that's serious that's happening. So you can, you assume that there can be second opinions, but apparently not when public health is involved. And even yeah. though the, um, the the lockdowns were a complete upheaval of what had been the plan, the pandemic plan for the previous century. So um, anyway, she, so the college can regulate professional misconduct uh, and the speech to some degree of, of its professionals. Um, but there's a line and we don't know quite where that line is. And that's what we're fighting about. Well, we live in a world, it seems, where there's multiple narratives going on. And you've got narratives that, that media will either say or maybe leave out big portions which don't give you the whole picture. You've got the public narrative of people over their dinner tables repeating what they hear or see, or, or they've got some portion of the facts. You also, in our country, in my opinion, you've got one where you have the government saying certain things. And they, and they all seem to be portions of the truth and misinterpretations. And it seems to be that if people don't line up with a narrative, there is this persecution that potentially could happen. Now, that all that said, leading into the cases you're representing, why should people who are watching this program, who are maybe being introduced to you for the first time, or they've been following you and your clients for a while, why should they care about these cases and where they're going? What's the greater thing that is on the line, I should say? Well, I mean, if you want to um, ensure that that someone is still fighting for freedom of expression and uh, diversity of thought in this country, then I suppose these cases are important to watch and and important to support. Um, I will point out, I'll make a little plug for the benefactors in both cases. Uh, The Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms is uh, funding the Amy Hamm case. Um, And the Democracy Fund is uh, is helping with with Dr. Kilvinder Gill's case. uh, but for those organizations helping out, uh, not in these just in these cases, but many others, uh, honestly, most people wouldn't be able to fight. It, yeah. It's costly. The, the risk of paying costs, as we just I mentioned with Dr. Gill, having that large cost award uh, for for fighting these battles is is really oppressive in a lot of cases. And so, um, so it's important that there be funding available to continue to push back and and keep people, you know, try to protect those those rights, those fundamental rights that we have in our charter that we thought we have um, to, to continue to, to fight those battles in order that it isn't just a continued steamroll over us to the point where, you know, we're in a totalitarian society where you are only allowed to think one thing or say one thing. Yeah. And we're getting awfully close. It's not there yet. But I think the key is to continue to speak up and to continue to push back. And so uh, any Canadian concerned about this should seriously consider trying to you know help fund these kinds of cases 
or at least be aware and also to continue to speak up where they can. Well, I'll continue with your plug because it's very encouraging to be able to chat with you and to see that there are people who are standing up and fighting and representing people who um, have got different issues like this going on. And I feel that there is still a large contingent in our country of Canada that still care about these fundamentals that our country is founded upon. And and you've mentioned earlier with classical liberalism and and what we are. That's what's made us a great country. Is this up to the, so? It's very encouraging having people like you and and as I actually leading to my next question is I would encourage the audience to support Lisa and the JCCF and, and other areas. We'll make sure all the information's on the screen so you can go help and support because that is fundamental. It's, it's so uh, important to continue to be able to stand up for what is ours and what's made Canada great because we all want to see a great Canada, a strong Canada for our kids and our grandkids going forward. Lisa, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, I feel like you and I could talk for hours on this subject because there's so much to go through. Um, but be following Lisa and the and the cases she's representing with Amy, with Amy Ham and Dr. Gill. There's lots of things going on. Lisa, do you have any final words that you'd like to say? No, but thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk to you because again, getting the message out that there is still a battle to be fought and and uh, and encouraging people to join. Uh, you know, that's that's a real big help to me. You are an essential part of this series. Support truth, knowledge, and wisdom by sharing this show with a friend. Visit returntoreason.tv. There you can subscribe to my newsletter by clicking Become an Insider. Get the latest articles, episodes, and exclusive content. You'll be the first to know about fascinating conversations I've had recently and what my research team is working on. If you have a suggestion for the show or would like the reference material for this episode, use the link in the show notes. Experience Return to Reason. Get involved.